Good evening. My name is Mike Tervisano. I am ordained as a Shuzo in our seminary program here at the part of our Dragonfly Sangha, the Blue Mountain Lotus Society, and I will be delivering this evening's Dharma Talk. The topic this evening is the path of seeing clearly, the right view, first of the Eightfold Path. I'm continuing uh, what Sensei Tony started talking about last week with the, with the right intent. And I want to repeat something he talked about, the idea of this word right in the Eightfold Path. The, traditionally, each of the eight starts with the word right. Right view, right intention, right action, right speech, right effort, right, right, right. And it might imply that there's an idea that there's a right one. Do it right, do it right, do it right. But that's not really the, the point. It's not about doing something right. There's not a right answer. There's not a singular perfect thing that we would have to achieve in each of these things in order to make some sort of imaginary perfect progress. The idea here is it's a skillful means or upaya that what's the right one? The right one is the one that's helpful, that's useful, the one that that helps to uh, alleviate suffering for ourselves and for, and for others. That's the right one. It's a path. Do the best that you can on the path, right? It's helpful, useful. So uh, the Eightfold Path, of course, is the fourth of the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths being Shakyamuni Buddha's sort of big, huge, first foundational teaching that he delivers once he, after his uh, enlightenment. He comes to this group of guys, fellow monks, and he says, I have found a middle way. What we've been doing is not the most effective thing, right? And I figured it out. He's talking from a, from a, a great bit of experience. He, as Siddhartha Gautama, first 27 years of his life, he is has wealth beyond imagination. He's a prince. He, he has everything you could imagine you'd ever want in life. And he realizes, and I suffered. I had everything. I had everything, all of the stuff that we usually, in our culture today, think is going to do the trick. You know, if I just had this job, and people thought of me this way, and they called me this, and I drove this kind of car, and I, you know, lived in this oh, amazing house, right? Then I would be happy, happy. I wouldn't suffer. Siddhartha, 27 years ago, says, no, it's not true. I had it. I had all that stuff. And I suffered. And I gave it all up. I said, all right, well, the answer's not there. The answer to suffering is not in, in having everything. So I'm going to give it all away. I'm going to go out to the woods. I'm going to live there. He lived there for seven years. And he, he as a wandering ascetic, sort of self-tortured, right? Didn't need anything. If you see you know, some of the images of of Siddhartha during his wandering ascetic years, he looks like something right out of The Walking Dead, right? He's like completely skeletal, like emaciated. In fact, some of the stories when, when he's found by the, the little girl who finds him, after he collapses, Sujata, she finds him and, and she thinks he's a ghost. She's like, this guy looks like a ghost. Luckily for all of us, she gives it, she offers him a little rice and milk and he realizes, man, this is not working, this ascetic thing. And so his teaching has that as well. It says, look, I had everything. I was able to do anything, and I suffered. And then I 
had nothing and I was able to do nothing and I suffered. So the answer can't be in doing and having. Because I was able to do it and have everything and I was able to see what it was like to not be able to have and not be able to do. I still suffered in the same way. It's not in these places. It's got to be something else. Guys, I found a middle way. He found a middle way. And he, and he talks about this middle way and this foundational teaching, the Four Noble Truths. The first of the Noble Truths is the Noble Truth of Suffering, or Dukkha. And simply put, the first Noble Truth is we suffer as, as humans. It's a birthright that we suffer. And, and it's important to distinguish between the idea of pain and suffering. I know Sensei Tony did last week, I'll, I'll repeat it here. It's important to know that, that life can be painful. We experience things that we have a right to experience bad emotions, sadness and tears and feeling awful because life is painful. But it's, it's the stories, the thoughts, and the, the stuff we tell about those painful experiences that cause suffering. One of my favorite stories the Buddha talks about to, to sort of make this distinction between pain and suffering is this, this idea, he says, when we are uh, shot by an arrow, it's like we're really shot with two arrows. Because the first arrow hits, and that's pain. I have an arrow sticking out of my chest. Nobody would argue with you that that's pain. Dude, you got an arrow on your chest. That looks painful. It is, right? But what we tend to do, metaphorically, is we get hit with the arrow, thunk, and we tell a story about it. Like, oh, God, this arrow. Who shot? Who would do this to me? I get along with everybody. Everybody likes me. Why would anybody? That guy shot. I thought we were friends. He betrayed me. That guy betrayed. And why would he do it with a red arrow? He knows I hate red. And look what it's done to my shirt. I just got this shirt. This is that we tell this crazy story. And that crazy story is our suffering. So the pain is the arrow. What we really should be doing if, in, in a cl perfectly clear way would be, I have an arrow in my chest. I need to get to a hospital and throw the rest out. Get rid of the second arrow, right? Tell them the story of light, and suffering is not light. But it's about being able to identify what's painful and what's suffering. Maybe I can do something about the suffering part of it. So, the first noble truth is about that suffering, that stuff we talk to ourselves about in our painful experiences. The second noble truth is the cause of suffering. And what the Buddha says is, we suffer because we crave things. We thirst. What he's talking about, I think in, in the Four Directions system of mindfulness, we talk about this image of perfection that our ego self has, that it's conditioned in us, that I've got this picture of life. And I, if, you, if you asked me to explain it, I would, it would sound like some crazy lunatic fever dream because it's a moving target, right? And it kind of floats all over the place. But I, I'm pretty sure about it. I'm pretty confident that people should think of me this way and I look a certain way, six-pack, right? Perfect, like, appearance that never gets old. That I've got this job, I drive this car, that 
I've got this title, right? Whatever that stuff is. But the problem I have is that I'm here. Mm, I'm not here. And the gap between the two is suffering because I crave things and experiences and stuff that I that will close this gap. And I, I don't see that every time I close with, the gap just kind of changes a little bit. These images of perfection are they're moving targets. He says it's that craving. It's the craving that we think that if I just had this stuff or this experience or this relationship or whatever it is, that that would fix me is a trick, that it's the craving. So the third noble truth is stop that craving. If you want to end suffering, stop the craving. Don't fill it, because if you, if you get the stuff you're, you're hunting after, we know this. The hedonic treadmill, right? We run on it forever. We, we think that you know, our biology tells us, if I get this stuff, it'll make me better. But as soon as we get it, we just want something else right after it. Right? We just never stop running on this treadmill. And he says, if you can stop that, then you can, then, then you can stop suffering. And he knows that that is a lot easier said than done. So he offers the Eightfold Path as, as the path to walk to end the suffering, as the way that there's a way to live, there's a way to think about life, that instead of just kind of tackling some something amorphous that's more difficult than our brains can handle, he says, do these eight things. Focus on these eight items, right? Have a, have a clear view of the true nature of the world, right view. Have the right intent. Sensei Tony talked about it last week. You know, set an intention. for That's the one thing I can control. I can control my intention, right? Right speech, right action, right livelihood. Do these things and do them in a way that's a little bit better today than I was yesterday. And hopefully a little bit better tomorrow. I'll work towards that. And I may get bumped off the path. Something will happen. I'm not perfect. Life is nuts. Right? Something will happen, it'll bobble me off the path, and I may have to get off. I might go off the path for years, right? It doesn't mean I'm a lost cause. The path is there, right? I can get back on the path, keep on it, keep working. Suffering will lessen. Put conscious energy toward it. So, the first of the Eightfold Path is the right view, the path seen clearly. If I can see clearly, if I can get a really like, clear sense, in a way that's meaningful to me, of what the true nature of the universe, the true nature of reality is, then it will shape everything about me. I'll operate a different way. Uh, the way I work will be different. The kind of effort I put towards things, the, my focus in meditating, or my valuing of meditation as a practice, all of that will be shaped by the, the way I look at the world view I have of it. In our tradition, the way this is expressed really clearly is, is the three principles of oneness. They are an encapsulation of, of how the true nature of the universe. So when we break them down, maybe hopefully we'll see how. So the first principle of oneness, and the first part of the right view, is this idea that suffering transforms into compassion. And what's important with this stuff is that that it be evident, that it be self-evident. I 
shouldn't necessarily have to work for it to see these things. It should be right in front of us. And I think we can see this with suffering transforming into compassion. And here's how. I suffer. I, that funny story I have with the arrow isn't so funny when I'm like feeling tremendously guilty about something or I'm depressed or I'm anxious or I don't feel worthy or whatever that stuff is. And by virtue of me doing it, I know you do it. I know everybody does it. I know that to be true as a condition of humanity, right? It's like we're born and somebody comes up to us and says, hey, well, welcome to humanity. It gets cold sometimes, so make sure you get a sweater. Oh, and here's your suffering. Let me just put that around your neck. Yeah, the chain pinches a little bit and it gets a little heavy sometimes. And that'll happen as you get older. It'll get heavier. But hey, good luck. I know this to be true about myself. I know it about everybody. That we suffer. And I do not like it. Right? Sounds flippant and stupid to say. And I don't like to suffer. I don't like it. So I have compassion for myself feeling that way. Like, man, let's do something to not feel that way. And I see that others experience it too, and I don't want that for them. I'm most impacted when the people that are closest to me, I love my family, my closest friends, when they experience it, I don't want that for them. I feel compassion emerges naturally. But I can go further. People I see in, in the world or life that I disagree with, that I would call an enemy, that I would say, that guy's a total jerk. I really see it clearly. I know why he's a jerk. Because he's suffering. He has some delusion, some way of looking at the world that is like shaping some hatred or greed, one of the poisons, that's got a hold of him. And that's causing this behavior. And I, I know what that feels like. I know what hatred, greed, and delusion feel like. And I wouldn't want it for myself, and I wouldn't want it for anybody. And when I could see that clearly, maybe I'd treat that guy differently. Maybe I don't vilify him and say, you know, that jerk is just a jerk and off with his head. Maybe I have a different way of operating with that person. And it happens naturally. Suffering transforms into compassion. The first, the first the principle of oneness. The second principle of oneness is this idea that change is inherent in the, in the universe, right? And oftentimes when we're confronted with change, we see it as a threat. And we don't want it, we push it away, but we, we don't have to view change like that. We can view change as an opportunity that, that even if it's something that I wasn't counting on, that, that I wasn't thinking was coming my way, I can see it as something that I can use in the in the great piece of art that is life. Like, I can, maybe I can do something with this. I can do something to be helpful. I can, I can help others through it. Um, one of the stories uh, I like that uh, makes me think of uh, this uh, second principle of oneness, this idea of change as an opportunity, not as a, as a threat. It comes from the Zen tradition. It's a story about a a, a fabled, wonderful teacher, monk, named Hakuin. And the story goes like this. Uh, there was a young girl, and she becomes pregnant. And in her in embarrassment and panic and not knowing what to do about becoming pregnant as a young girl, she and her parents are freaking out on her, as 
sometimes parents do to young girls who get pregnant. She lies and says, the father is Hakuin. And the parents are like, freaking out. You mean the celebrated Zen monk teacher who everybody loves is the father? And she doesn't know what else to say. She doesn't want to fess up to who the real father is. She can't do it. She just can't. They, they grab her by the hand, they go to the monastery, they pound on the door, they demand he come out, and they go nuts on him. They accuse him of, of the worst thing, taking advantage of a young girl like this, you, like the vision of, of perfect, whatever, monk, zen monkness, right? You did this to this young girl. And Hakuin looks at the family and says, is that so? Some months, late, months later, uh, the young girl gives birth to the baby. And the, again, the parents, they take the baby and they take it to the monastery and they say, you, you did this. Here, you take care of this baby. And Aquin says, is that so? And he takes the baby and he cares for it. He loves it. For about a year, until the guilt just can't, it's too much for the young girl to bear. And she fesses up and she says, she tells her parents, I lied. The real father of the child is the fishmonger's son. We're in love, we've been in love, and I couldn't tell you. The parents are mortified. They can't believe that she would lie like this. Are you kidding me? We accused the celebrated, incredible monk, Aquilene, of being the father. He's, he has the ba he's had the baby for like a year. You, uh, they, are, they are beyond themselves. So they run back to the monastery. They knock on the door politely this time. Hakuin. They apologize. They feel so shamed. They feel horrible. They explain everything that happened, and they can't express their, their sorrow as any more than possible. And Hakuin, as he hands the baby back to them, he says, Is that so? Now, Stories in the Zen tradition have, can have many different meanings, meanings and interpretations, but I, I think of the second principle of oneness when I think of this story. Because in his wisdom, in Hakuin's wisdom, he, he could have, like I probably have, confronted by you know, young parents with a child and a baby that I had nothing to do with, they're like, here, take this. I probably would argue, I would say, wait. Uh, <laughs> no, all right, fine, you take the baby, it's not mine, right? But Hakuin doesn't do that. He sees this thing coming out of this change in his life, and instead of seeing it as an insult or as a challenge to who he is in the world, he sees this as, this is a family that is not ready to deal with what's going on here in the, real, in the reality of the situation. But I can help. I can care for a child. I'm good at that. I'm good at loving. That's what I do. And so he takes the baby. And I think it's kind of cool, you know, if you'd search the story online, Hakuin, is that so, you'll come up with a bunch of different versions. But I, I feel like every version I run into has the idea that he lovingly cares for the child. That it's not something he does that's like forced upon him. Well, fine, jeez. Now, I, I, I have this image in my head of him, him genuinely doing what's best. What's best in that moment, in that view, is to care for this teeny little baby who is completely, has nothing to do with what's going on, and to give space for the family to figure out whatever is going on for them. And they do. 
it comes around, it turns around, they come back to him. And at that moment, he can give the child back. He's confronted with this change, and he turns it into an incredible opportunity to do something loving, take care of a baby, give great spaciousness, not judge anybody in the whole thing. I love it. I think it's a cool story. The third principle of oneness that helps us to experience this right view of the Eightfold Path is this principle, this idea of separation, this normal way I see myself in the world. That here's, here's Mike, and here's you, and there's a tree, and we're all separate, and there's this desk, right? And I go around in life, and I, and I, and I fight people, and hopefully some people will help me, and we're all very different, and it's me against the world, right? But that this feeling of separation transforms into a very apparent idea of interbeing, that I'm not separate, that if I really look, I don't have to look far before I realize that the things I typically see as boundaries between myself and others disappear awful fast when I realize that everything I have is because of other people. Every, from my parents to their parents to their parents to their parents bringing me here, right, and the connection to the, to the air and my dependence on that is every bit as much as, my, as I depend on my heart or my lungs, that I'm not separate from it. That, that to think that the air and me are different is just not seeing it right. Take it away, and there won't be Mike for very long. Right? That all of a sudden, the lines between me and not me are start to get very, very blurry. Not my, the robe that I'm wearing, it, it, came, it came from people uh, uh, getting material and sewing it, and a truck driver bringing it somewhere, right? Amazon Prime guy delivering, whatever, right? Take out any of those things and there would be no road, right? That I am, what I am is not just this little separate thing. I am this part of an incredible web. And it's the incredible web that is oneness. If I, when I see that, when I realize that deeply, everything kind of changes, right? I see people's behavior, I see my own behavior, I see what I want in life changing. It's not about competition so much anymore. Why would it be? We're all, we're all one thing. <laughs> it's not about like having more. It's not about needing to be more, defining myself as, as special in somehow, because we're all one. That's what's special. And man, when you feel it, you really feel it. And oneness is not sameness, right? It's not about it's not about one being, you know, we're all the same exact thing. No, it's this sort of crazy celebration of, of like, wow, we can be and do and all this stuff as part of the artwork of life. And it's all connected, man. So the three principles of oneness help me to see this right view. And the clearer I can see that, more evidence I can sort of allow come into myself, the, the different, the bigger the difference I'll have in my own life, the less suffering I'll experience, naturally. Inevitably, in the end, the right view, the three principles of oneness, the Four Noble Truths, it's all, it's all about recognizing I'm not, I'm not separate. I don't have to suffer. We're not alone.
I hope this was helpful. I hope you enjoyed it. Be well. Thank you very much.